The Institute of Art and Ideas is excited to announce Closer to Truth as an official partner for our upcoming How the Light Gets In Festival at Hey on Why, happening this year, May 24th to 27th. Closer to Truth examines humanity's deepest questions with the world's greatest thinkers, from Nobel laureates and renowned scientists to theologians and best-selling authors. For 20 years, Closer to Truth has explored the deep questions of cosmos, consciousness, and meaning. This year, host Robert Lawrence Kuhn journeys to new depths with their philosophy of biology season, exploring topics like evolution, race, alien intelligences, sex and gender, and much more. Get early access to full episodes from this brand new season by registering for a free membership at their website, closertotruth.com. Discover the fundamental issues of existence, engage new and diverse ways of thinking, and seek out your own answers with Closer to Truth. The Institute of Art and Ideas, articles, videos, and podcasts. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times podcast that brings you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. Is it possible for certain experiences to reveal specific truths to the experiencer? On this week's episode, we're discussing epiphanies, experience and ethics. To discuss moments of revelation, we're joined by Professor of Philosophy at the Open University, Sophie Grace Chapel. Whether we could think in a perhaps freer way, and maybe a more Um, dangerous way, a more risky way about what it is to be a human being in this world, what it is to be aware of value, what it is to live a life in which you try and get hold of values. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review, join the conversation on Facebook and Twitter, and head over to our website, iai.tv. Back now to Sophie Grace Chapel. I want to talk today about my current research, which is about epiphanies. And I'm going to start by explaining what epiphanies are and giving a few examples and saying why I think they're worth studying and why there's something maybe that we can learn from them. So most of my research has been in the area of philosophy that we call moral philosophy or ethics. It's also called sometimes the philosophy of value, though the name the philosophy of value covers other things as well such as aesthetics and thinking about reasons and what we have reason to believe as well as what we have reason to do. But what really struck me about ethics as a way of doing the philosophy of value is that a lot of the time it just seemed very distant from our actual experiences of value, from what we take as being valuable in our own lives. And I came across a striking passage in one of my favourite books, this one here, Ethics and the Limits of Philosophy by Bernard Williams, where Williams says there could be a philosophy of experience. There could be a philosophy of value in which we started not from theories, moral theories like utilitarianism, the thing to do is bring about the greatest happiness to the greatest number, or Kantianism, the thing to do is act always upon that maxim that you can at the same time will should be the maxim of every rational being in a kingdom of ends. Instead of starting from those points, we could start the philosophy of value and we could start ethics by thinking about experience, by thinking about the way we actually live and what matters to us in our own experience of life. Another book that was enormously important to me and still is in thinking about this is this book, The Sovereignty of Good by Iris Murdoch. 
And in some ways, what I want to say today is, if you like, a sort of um, a sort of mashup of things that are in Murdoch and Williams. Although I don't mean by that that either Murdoch or Williams would necessarily approve of what I have to say. So I thought about this um, disjoin, as I saw it, between our own experience of value, the way we experience value as we live, and the philosophy of value, and in particular ethics, where it was all about theories. And it was like the difference between, well, ordinary life and some peculiar kind of parade ground drill. And I wondered if there might be a way for philosophy to break out of the constrictions, as I see them, of moral theory, where we're only thinking all the time about whether a particular action or particular rule of action would fit with that moral theory, whether we could think in a perhaps freer way, and maybe a more um, dangerous way, a more risky way about what it is to be a human being in this world, what it is to be aware of value, what it is to live a life in which you try and get hold of values. And when I started thinking in that way and started thinking about the notion of an experience of value, my attention was drawn straight away to those experiences of value where things become focal for us, where values become specially clear to us, where we experience some value with particular vividness. And that's what I mean by an epiphany. The word has been around a long time, this word epiphany. It's there originally, of course, in um, Greek. It's a Greek word, epiphania. And in Greek, it means a revelation. And often it means a revelation of the divine. So in the Christian church, there's a festival of epiphany on January the 6th, celebrated um, 12 days after Christmas itself, um, depending on how you count exactly your days. And the festival of epiphany is about the revelation of divine value in the human world. Before that, epiphany was often used by uh, pre-Christian Greeks, by pagan Greeks, to talk about value too. The word didn't attain the meaning that particularly interested me until the 20th century, and it attained it through James Joyce. He was writing in a book called Stephen Hero, which was the uh, prototype of Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man in which he's, his hero, who's called Stephen Dedalus, says, well, what we have to do is try and capture these evanescent moments in which we experience something particularly um, spiritual, something particularly valuable. Those are epiphanies, and it would be good to try and write a book in which we write those epiphanies down. And in fact, James Joyce did write such a book. The book was called Dubliners. Dubliners is a study of various sorts of epiphanies in the kind of sense I'm talking about. So what is that sense? Well, let me start with some examples. Here's um, an example from my own life. This picture was taken by my partner. We were supposed to be going climbing, but it was a good day for skiing, and we ended up only skiing. This is me looking over the edge of the Larrick Grew with a cloud sea in the Larrick Grew, and um, it was an epiphanic moment for me being up there amidst that snow and all that beauty with a blazing sun in the sky and with perfect snow for skiing. And of course, one of the reasons why um, this is such a great picture that Stephen took of me is because um, it immediately reminded me subconsciously without my realizing I was being reminded of this picture here. <laughs> I think in that picture, I look a little bit like the wanderer above the sea of fog. And I was a wanderer above the sea of fog. 
When Caspar David Friedrich painted this very famous image, which is famously used as the cover for the Penguin edition of um, Nietzsche's The Antichrist, Friedrich was clearly thinking of a moment of epiphany where someone reaches the top of a mountain and sees below them the glorious world spread out before them in this magnificent way. So that's an example of an epiphany from the Romantic era. But to stress it again, in the Romantic era, although they clearly had the notion of an epiphany, a moment of revelation of value, um, they don't seem to have had the word. The word had to wait for Joyce um, roughly a century after Friedrich painted this picture. Another kind of epiphany, I'm, I'm going to want to say that epiphanies can take us in all sorts of directions because they're revelations of value in experience. Um, they can be revelations both of positive and of negative value. They can be revelations of beauty. They can be revelations, if you believe in the theological of theological understanding, they can be revelations of things that excite us, not only to love and admiration, but also to pity, to excitement. Um, they can be intellectual. Epiphanies can be intellectual, like the famous moment, um, I don't have a picture of this, fortunately, perhaps, where Archimedes got out of his bath and ran through the streets shouting, Heureka, Heureka, Eureka, Eureka, as we say in English, because he just realized that a way to measure the mass of a solid was to stick it in some water, uh, because that displaces the water. Um, that was an intellectual epiphany. Um, this here in Caravaggio's very famous painting is a moment of revelation of value. It's the moment when the disciples who um, have taken in the stranger as they're walking to Emmaus, they get to Emmaus, they take in this mysterious hooded stranger shortly after Jesus has been crucified, and over supper they suddenly realize that the stranger, unhooded now and blessing the bread and the wine, is Jesus himself. And this is Caravaggio's wonderful painting of that moment of epiphany. Um, in the book that I'm writing at the moment, I find myself talking a number of times about epiphanies involving plane trees. One of them was an epiphany of my own in uh, Mecklenburg Square in Bloomsbury in London, where they have magnificent plane trees. One afternoon, I rushed into a hotel room in Mecklenburg Square. I rushed upstairs. I was all a sweat. I was completely panting and frustrated and fed up. And I opened the window. And Mecklenburg Square, if you go there, if you happen to live in London and if you're allowed out, um, if you're close enough to Mecklenburg Square to walk there, you'll be able to see this for yourself today. And um, perhaps today would be a good day to do it. Um, the plane trees in Mecklenburg Square, as soon as I looked out of that window, upstairs in that hotel bedroom, all cross and bothered, all sweaty and fed up with the, the hassle of traveling and all the things that were bothering me at the time, I looked out of the window and the plane tree the plane trees of Mecklenburg Square took my breath away because they were beautiful. They took me out of myself. They made me aware, not of myself and my own worries, but of the world around me. And in that sense, they did me good. And here's another epiphanic plane tree. This is a plane tree in the grounds of Magdalen College, Oxford, one of my favorite places. And here is a great plane tree, which if you're lucky enough to be in that place, you can't go there at the moment, unfortunately, but when it reopens, it's worth visiting just to see this beautiful plane tree, this magnificent um, moment of glory in nature, which is the Magdalen Plain. I recommend it. It'll do you good. So there are some examples of epiphanies. And what I want to say about them, um, perhaps it's time for something like a definition of epiphanies. These are examples of epiphanies. 
what's the definition, you might be thinking. Philosophers are very keen on definitions. And again, this is another point where I want to veer a little away from the normal main current of philosophy, because although I think I can give you something like a definition of epiphany, it's not um, an if and only if definition, as philosophers say. It's not a tight and exclusive all or nothing definition. Either things are epiphanies and they fit the definition, or they're not epiphanies and they don't fit the definition. And if there are borderline cases, then I'm supposed to be worried about that. Well, because I'm a philosopher of experience, and because I think experience is a rather messy thing, nowhere near as tidy as philosophers' categories, I'm quite happy to say that the notion of an epiphany is something which has focal cases, but it's also something which has blurry edges. There can be questions about whether something is an epiphany at all. There can be questions about whether something, just as there can be questions, about whether something is a wave or not. Waves, if you like, are peaks in the surface of the sea, or indeed other kinds of waves are peaks in other kinds of wave stream. Um, epiphanies are peaks in, in the waves of experience, and we shouldn't expect there to be anything very neat to be said about where a wave begins and ends. It's like that with epiphanies. They shade off into the rest of our stream of experience. And in the end, my interest in the current research project is not just in epiphanies. It's in the whole continuum, the whole planum of our lived experience in which epiphanies are the peaks. And I think they say something particularly interesting about that experience, but they're not the only thing that's worth studying. So epiphanies, if I want to venture a definition of them, which as I say, um, is how I describe the focal cases of epiphanies. It's not meant to be an all or nothing definition, but it's something like this. Epiphanies are those peaks in the current, the stream of our subjective experience, where we are particularly vividly aware of value being presented to us by our experience in a way which um, in strong cases, in extreme cases, like um, this one and like this one, and like this one, are overwhelming. They're overwhelming experiences um, of value, of something which is given to us, something which just comes to us. Relative to it, we're kind of passive. It just happens to us that we experience that. And the experience is transformative. It changes the way we see the world. And the experience is something which leads us um, into various kinds of response, of which action is only one. And here again, I'm perhaps a little bit different from how a lot of philosophers are. A lot of philosophers want to say that ethics is all about action, that ethics is just about action, and that the only thing that matters is what we do in the world. That's not my approach at all. And on that, I am very much, I think, on the same page as both the two authors whom I mentioned at the start, especially Murdoch. Murdoch, in a marvellous paper, which isn't part of the um, Sovereignty of Good, but um, it's you can get hold of this in a collection edited by Peter Conradi called Existentialist and, Mi and Mystics. In a paper called The Darkness of Practical Reason, Murdoch talks about the way in which, before we ever get to thinking about action in ethics, we have to think about contemplation first. We have to think about the way in which the experience of value affects us, affects our inner life, affects our vision of the world, affects how we experience and how we understand the world. So the first thing that epiphanies do is not make us act in particular ways. They do do that, but that's not the first thing they do. 
the first thing they make us do is contemplate them. They take us out of ourselves to look, um, in a wonderful phrase of Murdoch's that we'll come back to later, at the great surprising variety of the world. The direction of attention is away from ourselves in epiphanies towards the world around us. And it's perhaps worth stressing that it's only then, it's only once that's happened, that a kind of vision of how reality is can be generated in us, a kind of vision of what value is and what we care about can be generated in us. And from that flow the great virtues, which I take to be first love, second pity, and third creativity, our responses to the world around us and our responses to the epiphanies of value that we receive are mediated through those virtues at their best. We respond in love to what we're aware of through epiphany. We respond in pity and we respond in creativity. To say a little bit about those three, well, the epiphanies that I began with, um, the epiphany of um, the, the beauty of the Cairngorms that I was lucky enough to experience there, the response there is obviously one of love in the first instance. The response that you might have to different kinds of epiphany that you might become aware of um, might be very different if it was a matter of pity. So an epiphany that might invoke pity, might evoke pity from us, is the awareness, becoming aware of someone else as being a human being just as valuable as me, but in dire straits of some sort or other. There's a wonderful story told by Chesterton about uh, St. Francis of Assisi, who's trying to get on with some ordinary business, and there's this beggar tugging at his sleeve. And it comes over St. Francis of, of Assisi that this beggar too is a human being who has a reasonable claim upon his attention. And at that point, he breaks off his everyday business and goes chasing after the beggar and loads him with money and swears that never again in his life will he allow another human being in need simply to pass him by in the way that's just happened. So that's pity. Creativity. Well, um, I take it that Friedrich's picture and also Caravaggio's picture are responses of creativity to some kind of epiphany. Um, we do, this happens when we uh, respond to the beauty that we're, we're aware of, as poets so often do respond by writing a poem about it, by drawing a picture like Friedrich's. That kind of response is a creative response. But taking up any kind of epiphany into our imaginative lives, making it part of us, making it part of our imaginary, as philosophers sometimes say, of how we understand and see the world, that too is a response of creativity, making it part of the fabric of what we are, making it our soul food, to use a phrase that I sometimes like to use. Epiphanies are psychic nutrition. They are what enable us to live in the world, to live well, to um, be rich in our responses and in our understanding of what is around us and what is valuable in the world. So that's um, the basic idea of what I'm doing in my research. I'm talking about epiphanies. I'm talking about beauty in the world. I'm talking about how that beauty can strike us and overwhelm us. I'm talking to about awareness of value that doesn't come through beauty, but perhaps through great suffering, perhaps through the spectacle of something unbearably um, horrifying, the spectacle of something unbearably sad that makes that activates the virtue of pity in us and that makes us seek ways to respond to it, um, which are ways of responding with love and creativity as well, one hopes, but where the aim is to help someone else, to reach out to someone else who
whose need you see is intense. So that is a basic outline, both of what I'm doing in talking about epiphanies and in researching epiphanies, also of what epiphanies are, and thirdly, of how epiphanies are supposed to affect us, how epiphanies might make us into um, people who have a richer engagement with the reality of the world. In the rest of this talk, I want to try and spell out and fill out a bit more what I'm saying about epiphanies by thinking about some of the problems that might come up with the notion. Before I go on to do that, and hoping that I've given you some basic sense of what I'm banging on about here, um, I want to read you a quotation from Shelley, which fills out some of the ideas I've just been talking about, about um, creativity and imagination. And this is from Shelley's book written the year before he died, not published until uh, about 20 years after he died, called The Defense of Poetry, which is e easily available online. And if you can get hold of a copy of it, I urge you to read it. It's quite short and it's rather wonderful. Man to be break greatly good, said Shelley, must imagine intensely and comprehensively. He must put himself in the place of another and of many others. The pains and pleasures of his species must become his own. The great instrument of moral good is the imagination, and poetry um, administers the effect by acting upon the cause. Poetry enlarges the circumference of the imagination by replenishing it with thoughts of ever greater, um, sorry, of ever newer love, which have the power of attracting and assimilating to their own nature all other thoughts, and which form new intervals and images whose void forever creates craves fresh food. So there too in Shelley is the notion of food here, the notion of psychic nutrition. Poetry strengthens the faculty which is the organ of the moral nature of man, in the same manner as exercise strengthens a limb. Now, Shelley, of course, is talking here specifically about poetry, which I take to be one way of responding to epiphany, a creative way of responding, by trying to put the epiphany that you experience in words. And a wide variety of poets um, have had the same idea, that that's what's going on in poetry, that the point of poetry, as Larkin says, is to capture, in, in an interview which he did with um, Harry Match, um, some years before his um, unfortunate demise, a while back, I think in the 1970s, um, Larkin said, the great thing about poetry is that poetry is there to capture experience. You write for anyone who will listen to you. You write for those who will hear. The point of writing poetry is to capture an experience and to hope that someone else can share it. So we have this way of responding to epiphany. Poetry is one way. There are other ways as well, of course. One way is simply to contemplate them. We don't all need to be poets. We can't all be poets any more than we can all be musicians or indeed philosophers. But we can all be aware of what's going on in our experience and try to make sense of it as um, a presentation to us of various forms of value which we can incorporate into our living and hope thereby to be made into better people. Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to iai.tv for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses and live events. Are you bored of the surface-level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper 
Get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe, and everything in between. It's free for the first month, and there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. So, some worries about um, this idea of epiphanies, and some of these come, um, I would have thought, from philosophers who are watching what's going on in my research with some scepticism, because it's rather different from what most philosophers do, and some of them are worries that I think will come from anybody um, who's um, hearing what I'm saying. They might have doubts about it, and I want to say something about those doubts in the remainder of this talk. So first of all, let me raise a worry that um, I think is very uh, actively raised by one person who writes about epiphanies um, or something like them in particular, um, and that is Walter Pater. Walter Pater um, wrote a great book in the 1870s called The Renaissance, in which he studied various artists from the Renaissance. In the conclusion, Walter Pater argues that um, on philosophical grounds, he thinks there is nothing to the world around us but a flux of experience. Our lives, according to Pater, are short, doomed to assume death. Um, we have nothing to do except grasp at the most vivid experiences that we can reach for. Um, and so Pater is the father, um, if you'll excuse the pun, of a certain kind of movement in um, art in the 1880s and 90s in Britain and France called aestheticism. So Pater's influence upon Oscar Wilde is very important in particular. Pater is the one who, in his book, The Renaissance, in the famous passage that I'm talking about, the conclusion, talks about grasping experiences and living our lives burning with a hard gem-like flame is his key phrase. What we have to do is grasp hold of experiences, forget the world, turn to the experiences, seek forevermore, evermore beautiful and gem-like experiences. And so one worry that we might have about a philosophy which focuses on experience in the way I advocate and focuses upon the subjective life of humans in the way I advocate, it might be a turning into ourselves. It might be a turning away from the world. It might be um, I'm going to be partisan here, mere aestheticism of the kind that Pater advocates, and which I want to reject. So how do I reject it? Well, simply because I don't think Pater is right to think that experience of the world can be separated off in that neat kind of way from the world of which it is experience. I think our experience is kind of glued to the world. It's kind of necessarily connected with the world and not easily separable from it. What we normally experience is the world through our senses. It's like if there were no thing there, there would be no experience for us to get hold of. So experience should always push us out towards the world itself, towards the world around us, towards, you can see the Iris Murdoch quotation on the screen again, towards the great surprising variety of the world, not into ourselves, not into the kind of solipsism that Pater's vision leads us to, but into engagement with the world. That's where such experiences should, and I think naturally do lead us, precisely because the notion of experience without the notion of a world of which it is experience is not, in the end, an intelligible notion. And that is what I think is wrong with Pater. So that's one way of addressing the question that I now have on my screen. How do epiphanies lead to action? Let me say a bit more than I've already said 
about this question. How do epiphanies lead us to action? Well, epiphanies generate three uh, responses, three emotional responses. And the relation between an emotion and a virtue is that um, an emotion is a disposition to feeling and a virtue is a disposition to good feeling. So through experience, we learn responses to it. There are better and worse responses. We become, we are made good people, I think, by experiencing um, beautiful things in the world and things of value in the world. There's an old saying, people say, oh, it would have made of, of some good experience. It would have made a good, a, a better person of you. It would have made a good man of you, people say, the certain kind of experiences. And I think that's exactly right. The world does influence us in just that way. So epiphanies lead us to love, pity, and creativity. They stimulate these, stimulate these virtues in us. And to act in line with them, to act in line with our epiphanies is to act well. Um, and we have to uh, act also in authenticity to the vision that the epiphany provides. We have to act in a way that is true to that vision, um, whatever that may mean in the particular case. And I want to stress that there aren't any general rules about how epiphanies lead to action, which are more um, exact, more precise than the ones I'm giving here. Um, that's because everything, I think, in the relation between epiphany and action is a matter of particularity and context. It's not something that can be spelled out in the kind of simple general rules that philosophers like to focus on. It's more, it's too complex for that. It's too complex a kind of responsiveness to be captured that easily. But we need to be authentic. We need to be true to the vision. We need to be self-critically self-aware. And we have to be, um, we have to line up this epiphany with what has been there in our experience before. Um, we have to, we have a narrative of self-understanding going if we're lucky, if we're not just merely chaotic, and we have to try and make sense of what comes to us in line with that previous self-understanding. And of course, it may be, uh, because epiphanies are transformative experiences, that the whole of our past narrative needs to be reviewed in the line, in the light of some new experience. That's a possibility that I think is very important. So it's not always just a matter of fitting in this new epiphany into what we already know. It changes what we know. It makes us something new. And that isn't just an individual, it's not just a conversation that you have with yourself. How epiphanies lead to action is also a social matter and a political matter. It's in conversation with others, in a line with our shared previous self-understanding as a group, as a society, as, um, as a democracy. We talk to each other, we're all in the same conversation, and it's in line with that that epiphanies lead us forward to action. And hence, once again, at the bottom of this slide, the quotation from Murdoch again, epiphanies lead us to action by getting us to stop focusing on ourselves and focus on something else. So that's a question about how epiphanies, um, how, how, how they affect us practically, what difference they make in practice, where they get us, where it gets me to talk about epiphanies. There's also a sceptical question, which I want to address, uh, perhaps as pretty much the last thing I'll say in this talk. And the sceptical question is this, it's a familiar kind of scepticism. I'm talking about moments of revelation of value. I'm talking about moments where we see something that we didn't see before. Now, notoriously, um, it's a key feature again of the aestheticism of the 1890s, following Pater, um, authors like Oscar Wilde, and again, authors like uh, uh, Baudelaire, 
were led into a kind of darkness because it became evident to them that epiphanies are not necessarily benign. Something can be a revelation of value to you or can seem like a revelation of value to you and can be profoundly negative. And this is how you get from Walter Pater to the quite conscious flirtation with extremes of evil that you sometimes get, at least in the talk, if not in the lives of people like Oscar Wilde and um, Kurt Baudelaire. So what if someone's epiphany was kill everyone? You have an epiphanic revelation. And the consequence of that, you think, is that you should go out and slaughter the rest of humanity. And of course, it's important to remember at this point that we live in a world where there are many religions um, which are often in conflict. And very often it seemed that religions are founded upon epiphanies, upon revelations of value. But what happens is that people come to think that their epiphany justifies them in extreme action against other people. Now, there are two ways in which I can meet this uh, question, that I can respond to the scepticism. And one is to take it head on and just say, oh, any epiphany that tells you that is a false epiphany. Any epiphany that tells you that is not true. It's not going to be an epiphany that really makes sense. Now, um, I want to, I, I think that moves right, but I think there's another move that we can make as well, which perhaps carries more conviction to those who are skeptical about the, the value of epiphanies. Um, I think it's important to remember that even if some epiphanies did have that negative effect, and if we didn't have good arguments against it, they would still there would still be some force for us in the epiphanies that we've experienced. We would just find ourselves in a conflict with those who, whose epiphanies are otherwise. But let me strike out another line just to close this talk. Um, notice that our epiphanies are epiphanies that we have as social beings, as members of a community. We, as human beings, are, as Aristotle famously said, social beings, political beings. And so for us, um, there are two alternatives. One is to live together in a democracy or something like it, at least a democracy, a conversation in the sense which I'll explain in a moment. The other is war. And so Moses Mendelssohn, the Jewish philosopher, in the process of pleading for toleration of the Jews in um, the late 18th century, he came out with the wonderful line that the opposite of war is conversation. So to live well in a free society, I want to suggest, is to live in what I call a conversational republic. It's to live in a an ongoing dialogue with other people about what it's like for us to live together in a free society, in a society where such a dialogue is possible. And for that conversation between us to happen at all, participants to it are going to have to abide by certain rules. And those rules, um, in work in progress, I call them the 10 Socratic Commandments. And if I had more time, I could go into what those are. They're rules that constrain the ways in which it's possible for us to have um, the opposite of war conversation going between us. We can't have a conversation, we can't reflect together on what it is to live well in a free society. We can't reflect on that if violence is an option. We can't reflect on that if killing everyone is an option. We can't reflect on that if bullying and browbeating and interrupting and talking over and talking down and snubbing and snobbery and bullying and magical rhetoric and lies and deception. If all those are possibilities, then we can't have a true 
free and open conversation of the kind that I think characterizes a conversational republic. So maybe there could be epiphanies which said things like, kill everyone. I don't think there could myself, but suppose we allow that. It remains true that those epiphanies couldn't be part of the great conversation of living well in a free society, because such an epiphany could not be part of that conversation. It wouldn't make sense, suppose the conversation could go on if that kind of epiphany was part of what could happen in it. So to live well in a conversational republic is to share together in trying to make sense of using our best resources, using our intelligence and our self-critical awareness and our past understanding of ourselves, our best past understanding of ourselves, which we share in together. Um, it's in sharing that that we build up what I call social knowledge, which is the shared stock of epiphanically based knowledge that we as a society have and can build upon together by thinking further about what what is good in the world and what's beautiful in the world and what we want to love and to take pity on and to create using that world. So here's Iris Murdoch, the quotation at the bottom of the handout, just to counter this idea that epiphanic experience, which was profoundly negative, could be part of epiphanic experience that we could share as part of our social knowledge, as part of a good society. Iris Murdoch starts in this famous quotation on her own, in a kind of solitary state, looking out of the window in an anxious, resentful state of mind, oblivious of my surroundings, brooding perhaps on some damage done to my prestige. Then suddenly, she says, I observe a hovering kestrel. In a moment, everything is altered. The brooding self, with its hurt vanity, has disappeared. There's nothing now but kestrel. And when I return to thinking of the other matter, it seems less important. So the power of at least some epiphanies, the positive ones, um, like this kestrel, not the negative ones, the epiphanies of evil that perhaps are also possible. Some epiphanies have the power to bring us into communion with others, to bring us back out of a kind of isolation, which is imposed on us by selfishness and by concern for the ego and by concern for um, prestige and reputation, such as Murdoch talks in that passage. Some epiphanies have the power to bring us away from that towards um, awareness of the beautiful world that is around us and in which we live and in which we can learn to share. That is the point that Murdoch is stressing there. And that's the point that I want to close by stressing, that um, for all of us, there is a shared world which we can come to share in more fully by embracing the positive value in our epiphanies, by embracing what is good in those epiphanies and what leads us um, into a shared world, into the conversational republic that I'm talking about. So even if there were epiphanies that led in negative directions, I think the most that we could usefully do with them in um, that conversational republic is let off steam, so to speak, by um, exploring those fantasies in art, exploring those fantasies in negative ways, um, th those negative fantasies in positive ways by sticking them in art. And that, I think, is what a lot of art does. A lot of art, I think, is precisely that kind of blowing off steam. It's about the awareness that there are negative perceptions of the world which are quite possible to us, but we're not going to embrace them. We're not going to live by them. We might explore them in some strange, weird fantasy of art. Everybody loves a good villain. Um, but that isn't the world that we actually share in the same way, at the same level. The world of art where such dangerous 
um, villains as Richard III or Macbeth or Iago are possible. That's a fantasy world, and perhaps it's necessary to have that fantasy world in which to explore the possibilities of evil, but we need to live in a world where it's the possibilities of goodness that we're realizing. And that um, is the world that I'm trying to suggest we're moving towards if we think about epiphanies, and in particular, if we think about those epiphanies which can become part of our social knowledge, of our shared understanding of what is good and what is beautiful and what is creatively powerful in the world. And so that is what I see as of value in talking and thinking and writing about epiphanies. Thank you for your attention. I hope it's been worth your while. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. Remember to like, subscribe and review wherever you listen. And tune in next week for more big ideas from the world's leading thinkers. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.